Um, <clears throat> as was communicated earlier, we are beginning a new season or a new series this week called In the Beginning. It is a series on the book or actually the first few pages of Genesis, the first few pages of our scriptures. And uh, so I just want to give you real quick a little overview. The next five weeks, that's what we're going to be doing, is just looking at the first three pages of our Bible. The first three weeks are going to be dialed into chapters one and two. Then the fourth week will be another look at chapter two. And then the fifth and final week will be a teaching on chapter three. So that's what you can expect as you kind of take a glance at the next five weeks. Uh, so <clears throat> here's my encouragement. I would either view this morning as a really long introduction or if it's better for you to view it this way, to view it as part one of three parts focused on the first two chapters. Today, we are going to get really far. We're going to cover verse one and verse two. Yep, both of those verses today. And then the following week, we're going to look at the first creation account in chapter one. And then the next week, the second creation account in chapter two. Okay. So that's what uh, the first three weeks looks like, and then again, chapter two and three the following weeks. Now, when I start a new series, there are oftentimes, if you've been around this place for the last decade, you will know that there are times where I begin with some caveats. Uh, however, a little bit different, I did not feel that this series, I wasn't persuaded it was in need of caveats. And so I'm going to start a little bit different this morning. Um, because I am persuaded that what we should be reminded of is a few reasons why we would do a series on Genesis. And so I want to give you three reasons why we would do a series on Genesis. And then I want to challenge you with one thing before we start looking at the text. All right? So <clears throat> that's where we're headed. Uh, I want to start off with why this series. First reason. Part of why we want to start with this series, or why we want to look at the beginning of Genesis and the origins of man, is because we place an incredible importance on the storyline of the scriptures. So we believe the Bible to be the revelation of God to us, intending to communicate to us an incredible narrative, an incredible story. And it is a narrative that we don't just want to understand, it is a narrative we want to embody. We want to live it out. We want to invite other people into the story. Uh, it is such a meaningful story that we want it to consume everything we do. So it is of utmost importance. And I think one of the best ways to understand the storyline that we are a part of and the storyline of the scriptures is to actually wrestle with the start of the story. As with any story, the beginning is often the part that is of the greatest importance. It's the thing that kind of sets the stage for all that is to come. And uh, it's no different with this. There is significance and weight to the beginning of the story, and so it's important that we communicate about it. I would also contend that <clears throat> there is a misunderstanding with the storyline of the scriptures and the meta narrative that we're a part of, 
And that has caused many people in the church to actually walk away from the church. A misunderstanding about the way the very beginning of our story unfolds has caused some within the church to reject the story, and it has caused many people from outside of the church to look in on faith and religion and say, I want nothing to do with it. And so what we're going to be looking at over the next five weeks is of great, great importance. The second reason why we want to cover this particular series Uh, Genesis 1 through 11 carries with it emotion, debate, and controversy within the universal church. Okay, I'm not saying within us as a local church. I'm saying in the church broadly, there (coughs) is probably too much emotion, debate, and controversy when it comes to this particular um, story and the very beginning of our Bible. And uh, there's several reasons why I believe this is the case. So I want to give you a few. Maybe one of these will resonate with you and maybe why you feel some uh, energy when anyone talks about this particular part of the scriptures. Um, Here's a few reasons why. One, many of us have heard something as a kid in the church and then have failed from that point forward to read the scriptures for ourselves. And so there's certain assumptions we have about what it says just from our upbringing within the church. At the same time, there are others of us that, whether in the universal church or sitting right here, already know what we know that we know. And so when we come to the text, the only thing we're coming to do is to prove what we already know. So we're already convinced, so there's nothing more to look at. Uh, Some of us, are maybe a little bit fearful. If I have understood my Bible incorrectly with this, which seems to be quite an easy passage of Scripture, then what else could I be getting wrong? And that makes me a little bit nervous. So maybe some of us fit into that category. Um, Others of us are maybe just asking the text to do things that it was never intended to do or to say things that it was never intended to say. And so we're trying to force the text to do something for us that maybe it's not intending to do. Uh, I think there are other people within the church at large that are afraid of the debate between the Bible and science. And they assume that since there's a debate between the Bible and science, that they have to choose one side rather than going, oh, maybe there's something about the Bible and science that work together. And then a last, uh, another reason that I believe that kind of perhaps perpetuates some of the angst with this particular topic is we are afraid that if we don't hold fast to certain uh, teachings in this particular portion of the scriptures that what will happen is that culture will slowly chip away at the very foundation of what we believe and therefore ultimately we will stand on nothing and then the core of our faith will be gone And then why do we even go to church anyway on Sunday? We should just ski. And then the whole thing will, it's just going to all go downhill really fast, right? And so we have all of these perhaps tensions, feelings, wonderings, curiosities, concerns that I think create some of this emotion and debate that we're talking about. Uh, And so my goal and our goal as the staff is to begin to take some of the debate out of the text. We want to take some 
or remove some of the emotion of what we're looking at and instead see the text is incredibly beautiful. We want to appreciate the literature and the way it's written. We want to examine and marvel at the beauty of the poetry. We want to consider the messages that are emerging from this artistic text and savor that and have it teach us something rather than coming into it assuming we know what it's already going to teach. All right? Third and final reason we're doing this series is we want as a community to be more concerned about the why than the how. Okay? So before we even talk about the how of the creation story, it is essential to be reminded of the why, right? Why did God even choose to create anything? God lacked nothing. He wasn't sitting around twiddling his thumbs going, man, I'm bored. Why not do something? He wasn't thinking, oh, why not just create a bunch of people who then will rip my heart out over time, right? Uh, none of that was a part of the story, right? And so yet he decided it was of great importance to do it, but why? So before we even get to the how, I think it's important to consider the why. And in order to do that, and in light of Clipboard Sunday, I thought I would break out the Jesus Storybook Bible to give us a start, okay? So, this is entitled The Story. We're at the beginning. All right, children, this would be the part in your clipboards that you can take some notes, maybe draw a little picture uh, that goes along with this. God wrote, I love you. He wrote it in the sky and on the earth and under the sea. He wrote his message everywhere. Because God created everything in his world to reflect him like a mirror, to show us what he is like, to help us know him, to make our hearts sing. The way a kitten chases her tail, the way red poppies grow wild, the way a dolphin swims. And God put it into words, too, and wrote it in a book called the Bible. Now, some people think the Bible is a book of rules, telling what you should and shouldn't do. The Bible certainly does have some rules in it. They show you how life works best. But the Bible isn't mainly about you and what you should be doing. It's about God and what he has done. Other people think the Bible is a book of heroes, showing you people you should copy. The Bible does have some heroes in it, but as you will soon find out, most of the people in the Bible aren't heroes at all. They make some big mistakes, sometimes on purpose. They get afraid and run away, and at times they are downright mean. No, the Bible isn't a book of rules or a book of heroes. The Bible is most of all a story. It's an adventure story about a young hero who comes from a far country to win back his lost treasure. It's a love story about a brave prince who leaves his palace, his throne, everything to rescue the one he loves. It's like the most wonderful of fairy tales that has come true in real life. 
You see, the best thing about this story is it's true. There are lots of stories in the Bible, but all the stories are telling one big story. The story of how God loves his children and comes to rescue them. It takes the whole Bible to tell this story. And at the center of the story, there's a baby. Every story in the Bible whispers his name. He is like the missing piece in a puzzle. The piece that makes all the other pieces fit together and suddenly you can see a beautiful picture. And this is no ordinary baby. This is the child upon whom everything would depend. This is the child who would one day, but wait. Our story starts where all good stories start, right at the very beginning. So, that's our reminder of the why. Let me pray, and then we'll start to get into the how. Let's pray. <coughs> God, thank you for making a story and revealing it to us, and a story that encompasses all of our stories and gives all of our stories purpose and meaning and value that you, from the very beginning, infused us with dignity and purpose and all of it is to direct toward you. So God, thank you for your gifts. Thank you for your creation. Thank you for your beauty. Thank you for your power. May we be mindful in the days and weeks to come of the importance of why you did what you did far more than how you did what you did. And may that story captivate us and motivate us to be the kinds of people you've invited us to be. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, right before we get to the two verses that we're going to spend our time on, uh, I said I would give you three reasons, and then I said I would give you or offer one challenge. Here's my challenge, all right? I'm going to ask you to come to the text as if it was the very first time, Okay. As if you're reading the origin story and it was completely new to you and you were just taking it in, I'm going to ask that you read it with a set of fresh eyes. To take what you think you know to be true about the verses and just read it again anew. Okay? Now part of what that means, part of that challenge means that you, I'm asking you to acknowledge that reading the Bible is a cross-cultural experience. It is a cross-cultural challenge that there is a significant distance between us and the author and the recipients, okay? There's a significant distance. Um, we have to understand that the author is not writing the passage to us and is not concerned with what might concern us in 2019, this means that what we're trying to understand in these first three pages is what we're trying to understand is what these pages are saying to a group of people quite unlike us. So what we're doing is we're seeking to understand what the Bible, or understand the Bible on its own terms. We're trying to understand the claims that it is making, not the claims we want it to make, or the claims that make the most sense to us. This means, in some ways, you have to begin to think over the next five weeks like an ancient and not like a modern. 
You need to think in terms of how they would have thought rather than how you think in today's context. So perhaps the best way for us to begin to see what I mean by this is to try to wrap our heads around this idea of how far we are distant from the text. So here's what I'd like you to do, just for a moment. I want you to imagine the year 5,000, okay? Just think about that moment. The year 5,000, just imagine what is happening in the year 5,000. Okay, if this would help, think about the number of changes that have come in our society and in the course of your lifetime, from the time you were born to today, and then go, okay, and then now the year 5,000, okay? So for those of you in the room that were calling on landlines and now you have a thing in your pocket that has more technology in it than they used for Apollo 13 to get to space, right, that phone, and then translate that to the year 5,000. Now, why would I pick the year 5,000? Let me give you a reason. We are about the equal distance between the year 5,000 and between us and King David. King David. Then you go back another 1,000 years, and you're like at Abraham. We're still not even at the beginning of the story at that part, right? So imagine the cultural distance between us in the year 5,000 and us and King David or us and Abraham, and you recognize that to say that we are culturally removed from this time period and the people to whom this is addressed is a bit of an understatement. Are we right? Okay. So I am asking you for a little bit of time to suspend judgment on the ideas that we cover, to take them in, to sit with them, let us get through the series. Let's wrestle with it. Let's discuss it with small group. Let's dialogue on it. Let's be open-minded and, like, listen to what the text is saying um, because I think that's what's going to get us the furthest in this particular series, all right? So that's my challenge. Suspend judgment, factor in cultural distance, come with a fresh set of eyes, and discuss it with a friend, okay? So with that said, let's look at the text. Many of you might not even need to open it because you haven't memorized. It'll also be on the screen. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Okay? Pretty revelatory opening statement. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, this is the intro verse to the story. We all know it. We were taught it when we were little, many of us. It is the intro to the story. Now, this is important. Every scholar, or most every scholar, would indicate it's an introductory sentence to the whole narrative, right? So that's another way of saying this. Nothing has happened in verse 1. Verse 1 is just telling us about what's about to happen, but nothing has happened in verse 1. It's kind of like when you read the tale of two cities and it starts out, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. Like they really haven't told you about the times. They're just setting the stage to say we're about to tell you about all the times, and you're going to figure out some things over the course of reading the story. So it's all introductory. Nothing has happened in verse 1. The sentence is setting us up for what's to come, and yet there's some valuable things to learn or to understand in verse 1. So I want to pause there for just a moment 
And again, I want you to use your imagery and your mind and picture a few things for me, okay? When I read part of the verse, I want you to think about the first thing that comes to mind, all right? God created the heavens. Now, when you think of heavens, what do you see? What comes to mind? What, what pictures do you see? Sky? What else? Galaxies? What else is up there? Light. Angels. Wide open spaces. Sun, moon, stars, right? You get the idea. Images come to your mind when you begin to hear the phrase, God made the heavens, or created the heavens. Now, God created the earth. When you think of earth, what image comes to mind? You don't have to say it out loud. I would imagine the image that comes to mind is something like this, right? We think of the sphere of the earth. We think of what was what we look in on it and go, oh, yeah, the earth. All of us from the time we're little identify this particular image or this particular idea. Here's my question, and the answer will be obvious here in a moment. How long have humans had access to this image? Clue on the screen. <laughs> April 1, 1960. First time that any human would have had access to be able to conjure up that mental image. Prior to that, we as a public had never seen an image from space that was televised that we could then go, oh, Earth, right? 1960, first time. So to say that this image that you have in your mind is relatively new is an understatement. Millions and 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 millions of people if shown this image or any Israelite that this is written to and you would have shown them this image would have said, what is that? What am I looking at? I don't know what this is. Can you help me to understand it? Now you, your whole life, many of you, have been only aware of this as Earth. That would be the only image that comes to mind because you're told from the time you're little it's on maps and everything, right? But this was not an image that any writer would have conjured up, nor would any reader have understood that idea. None. So it doesn't come to mind for them, and yet somehow it comes to mind for us because what we're doing is we're taking our experience and having that experience help us understand this experience. Now, some of you are going, ah, well, the Bible, God could have had the Bible written in a way that we would all understand it differently. Sure, right? But let me say this. There's not a single instance in the Bible in which God revealed to Israel a science beyond their culture. Another way of saying that is this. No passage in the Bible offers a scientific perspective not common to the science of antiquity. So, we have to think about the world the way they would have thought about the world. We have to think about it the way they would have thought about it. So, the question becomes, what would it have meant for an ancient to understand this idea of heavens and the earth? So, if an ancient was told, God created the heavens and the earth, what would they think in that moment? 
Let me give you what I think would be a simple illustration. This picture. They would have said, oh, so God created everything that we see up there and everything we see down here. And when did he create all that we see up there and all that we see down here? In the beginning. That's what it meant, right? So verse 1 is giving us, as a reader, putting on ancient eyes rather than modern eyes, a very clear indicator that, hey, some things have been created, and God created them in the beginning. doesn't tell us when the beginning is. And everything you see up there, everything you see down here is what he created. Okay? Basic, verse 1. Okay. Now, this is where it starts to get interesting. Because now we get into verse 2. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Again, when I was like five or six, maybe seven, is when I memorized these two verses. And from then, you could say them, you know what they mean, or you think you know what they mean. But here's what's interesting. Notice there's some really key words in this verse. There is earth, there is darkness, there is deep, there is waters, right? So we get to verse 2, and there's some key players already on the stage. Are we all in agreement with that? Okay, but what we have is no word of how they got there. Are we all in agreement with that? We're not told anything up to this point. We're just simply told all these characters are on the stage. All these actors in the play are present. Okay? And we have no idea how they got there. Now, before you get nervous, before you're like, what is he saying? I'm getting anxious. Okay? Let me say this. I believe God created them. I believe he created everything. But we are faced with our first interesting twist on what the desire of this account is trying to communicate. Okay, this is our first interesting twist on what is the author really trying to communicate to us and to the original readers. So, if you think that the account is trying to give us a material creation of the world, like how each of the materials were created, then we are forced to consider or reconsider the timeline of creation, right? Because there are already created things present in verse 2. So if you already have an earth, and you already have a deep, and you already have some darkness, and you already have some water, there's some players on the stage that we're not told how we got there. So if it's about the material creation of the world, our timeline might need considering. Number two. If we think that the account is trying to tell us of the creation of the world ex nihilo, meaning out of nothing, which many of you probably were uh, taught when you were growing up, maybe that God created everything that we see out of nothing. So that nothing existed before he created it, right? If that we think that's what it's trying to tell us, then we are forced to consider how the items in question got there in the first place. Now again, I think God created those items. But we do have to ask the question, if we think he created everything out of nothing, why is stuff present? And if we think he began the creation starting in like three and on, 
then why are these four players already here? Does that make sense? So, John Walton <coughs> gives us an interesting point when he makes this statement. The starting point of the creation narrative does not lack in matter or substance. The starting point of creation, or the story, lacks order. Lacks order. And here's where the text makes this quite obvious for us to see. The text gives us major clues that we need to understand uh, that the author is trying to get us to notice. I'm going to give you a few of those clues in the next few moments. First, the one clue that's probably the most obvious or the most important clue is that the earth was formless and void. So before the author describes anything else about the earth, he's saying that there, whatever it is that you imagine the earth to be, it was formless and void, okay? Now, formless would mean orderless, okay, or not having order, or lacking worth and purpose. So if we're looking at the original Hebrew in it, it's really signifying this idea of it didn't have purpose, it didn't have worth. Uh, it could also be translated as being wild and waste, okay? So the person reading it would have been like, oh, so it's just like a wild desert wasteland. Like n not good, like not, not ideal, it, was, it had no order to it, it, it lacked meaning, purpose, it was devoid of, of substance. Does that make sense? So that would have been a particular understanding that the reader would have had, a wild desert wasteland. But here's another idea. So you move from formless and void to darkness over the deep. Now the ancient idea of darkness, and specifically the ancient idea of the deep, is an idea of chaos, or non-order, non-conformity. Uh, there was fear about chaos, there was fear about the deep. Because it's a place you don't go, it's a place that you don't know what's there. You can't see it, you can't understand it, right? And so chaos would have been on the mind. So right from the very beginning, you have these two images that are surfacing. The first being a wild, untamed desert, and the other being a dark, deep ocean, or deep depths, chaos. That's what's being communicated from the beginning. Now, this would have made sense if you think about the geography of the author. So the author is sitting between a desert on one side of everything that they know and a sea, a massive Mediterranean sea, on the other side of everything they know. And so they're sitting in the middle of this world saying, God has just created everything we see above and everything we see below. And before he did that, it was like totally crazy, wild desert wasteland or insanely chaotic, deep, scary, fearful kind of world right? So the desert and the ocean are this symbolism of not a place for humans to dwell, not a place of safety, not a place of rest. It would have been a place where you as a human would not inhabit the space. It wasn't worthy of us. It was too scary or too chaotic. But here's what's really cool about the passage. You notice right from the beginning that the author is saying it's chaotic it's fearful, 
it's messy, it's not ordered, it's not what we want, and yet there's another real key player, the Spirit. And in the midst of the chaos, the Spirit, the text says, is hovering. Which means the life-giving present presence of the Spirit is in the midst of the chaos. In the midst of the wild and untamed, the Spirit is present. So what God is doing is he's looking to carve out order in the midst of non-order. He's looking to breathe life into that which is not able to be inhabited. He is looking to bring beauty to that which seems chaotic and disorderly. And the text tells us in the verses to come that what he does is he breathes or speaks order into creation. He speaks it. Now this is a story of God speaking. And what's interesting to me, it might be interesting to you as well, that in the first page of your Bible, God, the Spirit, speaks ten times. And those ten times do something to our world. It might remind you of another time he spoke ten times to his people. There were ten words. We tend to call them the Ten Commandments. There's a pattern going on here. He spoke ten times on the first page to reveal something and spoke ten times again to his people to reveal something new. When he speaks, order comes. When he speaks, chaos is subsided. When he speaks, beauty comes from disorder. And so we're left asking the question, what kind of origins story is this? What is the author really trying to get at? If this is what the first two verses are telling us, what does the author want us to notice? <clears throat> and what I think you should be starting to see is that this creation story is a story of the functional origins and not the material origins of the world. It's about the functional origins and not the material origins of the world. I'm going to try to explain that a little bit more over the next two weeks, but I want to give us an illustration to wrap up our time this morning that I think will uh, hopefully help us see the difference between what some could say is a functional origin and the other a material origin. The last Sunday, I was with uh, the leadership school, a group of people who signed up for this small group for us to look at what it means to be a leader. And we went over to uh, Kevin's parents' house. Uh, Greg and Randy Long Longmire invited us over. Uh, they hosted. And uh, his parents had been in the process kind of over the winter. It took longer uh, than they anticipated it would, but uh, they've been building a home. And uh, they went through the process of building it, and just recently uh, they moved into their new place. And so this was uh, the first time I had been at their new place, and this is uh, the first, maybe one of the first times a group had come over. And um, so I got a chance to kind of peek around a little bit and see their new home, and uh, it, was, it, was, it was awesome. It was a great time, and we had a great time as a group. But here, here was what was interesting. <clears throat> they invited us into the home. Uh, I asked them a couple questions about it. And uh, what they did is they told me the origin story. They told me uh, how it came to be, right? 
So there's two ways of telling an origin story. They could have told it one of two, at least in my opinion. Uh, one way would have been something like this. Russ, I'm so glad that you came to our house. Here it is. Let me tell you about it. On day one, <coughs> we bought the property. On day two, we went to the architect and we put together some plans. We got some blueprints drawn up. We figured out what the dimensions were. Day three, we dug a hole. Just, you know, digging through the dirt. There was some stone and rock. They took care of all that. They created a space, poured the foundation. It was amazing. We got the basement filled in. Good thing we got that right before winter. Then uh, on the next day, we started to kind of erect the walls. Uh, we kind of roughed that in. Then uh, we threw up some beams. You can tell I'm not a builder. Beams that <laughs> then you like throw the roof on. And I know they have a word, it trusses or something. I don't know. But anyhow, we threw up the next thing and then the roof went on top. And so then it was like dried in. And then once we had it dried in, then they started like with the electrical. And then the plumbing came in. And then and every single day we got up and we went, oh, and we called it good. Hey, the plumbing's done. That's good. And then the electrical's done. And that was good. And then we painted the walls. And they, No, that was not the story. That is the origin story of their home, though. Or their house, I should say. It's the origin story of a house. Instead, what they did is they told me the origin story of their home. There's a big difference between the two. Their home was how it became theirs, how they made it a home, how they decorated it why they wanted a fireplace, why they considered it important to have a porch, how they envisioned using the space. All of that was the story of their home. You see the difference. There's a house story that tells you about the material construction of the ho house, and then you have a home story which tells you how they came to indwell the home, to be a part of it, to share it with others how they made it theirs, right? That is a home story. So the question we're asking this morning is, did the author want to tell a house story, or was he intending to tell a home story? Did he want you to have the play-by-play -play on the construction process with the blueprints, or was he up to something more with the passage? I would suggest that the author is telling the story of a home. A story intended to focus more on theology than on science. A story of chaos being turned into order. A story more concerned with how the cosmos became sacred space than concerned with construction plans. A story where that which was formless and void is now ordered and filled with beauty. And at the center of it is a spirit hovering over everything. A God who is in the midst of chaos and is the one who brings order to all. See, God is the center of it all. God is the creator of it all. But this is the account of a creation, I believe, of a home and not a house. And so next week, what we're going to do is try to unpack that a little bit more. Here's what we're going to look at next week. We're going to look at what is meant by days one through seven. We're going to look at the importance of rest in the creation narrative. Why did it come last and why is it most important? Why is the symmetry of the text created the way that it is with God forming certain things and then filling certain things 
if God was just doing material creation, then why did he call, why didn't he call the light light? He would have called it something different, we know, because we read it in the text. But why did he call it something different if he was just concerned about the material creation or the house construction rather than the home? And last but not least, why is the passage framed around the idea of the cosmos being sacred space? That's where we're heading next week when we look at creation narrative one, the following week, creation narrative two. And then uh, we'll keep going from there. In the beginning is just getting started. I'm excited about the series. Uh, let's stand and we'll close our time with a benediction.